Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in politics. My name's Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and I've been watching too much Westworld and now I think that I might be a robot and nothing is real. (laughs) A lot of issues to unpack there, but coming up on the show today, so... We have had a lot happen this week. Oh my God. And so unlike a normal episode where we would break down maybe two or three different things that happen in Australian politics, we are going to break down one big topic. And that topic is what the fuck happened? Covergeddon. Covergeddon. Remember when we were like, nothing will top last March in terms of news weeks? What happened last March? When COVID started. Oh, last like March yeah. last Le- year. Ma- oh, sorry. I I I have no concept in my mind that we have faced two marches worth of COVID. <laughs> like it has all been one long year for me. Yeah. So this past week saw 12 million Australians go into lockdown. We had the prime minister just like open up the AstraZeneca vaccine to anyone over 18, seemingly of his own accord. It doesn't seem like there was medical advice given to him there. Very unclear what <laughs> happened there, baby. The states and the federal government were fighting over international traveller numbers. Then we had like the pandemic exit plan announced. It was a huge schmozzle and there was a lot of misinformation going around. So that's why we are spending this episode breaking it all down for you, explaining everything that's happened. You're going to feel so good after listening because it's going <laughs> to finally make sense. We're saying this as a sort of positive affirmation because we want to feel so good after researching <laughs> and recording this and we want everything to finally make sense. <laughs> we want it to make sense to ourselves anyway but first Matilda before you get into that how was your week oh my gosh guess what what I'm vaccinated baby. I know. I'm vaccinated baby congratulations thank you so much yes I when um Scott Morrison seemingly off the cuff <laughs> announced that anyone over 18 could now get the AstraZeneca vaccine uh Anthony our producer and also my boyfriend and I uh decided to go ahead and get it done and so we rang up we booked in on Thursday we uh got got that little jab and now, you know, we're just hanging out half vaccinated. It's Woo! been good. I've really Woo! enjoyed it. A lot of people wrote into our Instagram page after hearing that you were getting vaccinated, wondering how the symptoms are, how you're feeling after the vaccination. Give us, what, how has it been? Yeah. So I think it's really interesting because I wasn't, I think a lot of people who've got vaccinated with AstraZeneca really early on, like young people, have been the kind of people who've been like, I'm not worried about blood clots at all. Like, it's not even past my mind. Like, I wasn't quite like that. Like, I was actually on the fence, like, even the morning of getting Mm. the vaccine. Um, But what made me feel really good about it was just being very educated about what the side effects were going to be and then talking to my doctor and like I have this whole strategy planned out like I know every symptom to look for yeah I know what hour if this symptom continues I need to go to the emergency room like none of this is ever going to happen to be very clear it's, it's extraordinarily rare it's a it's like a three in 100,000 chance of getting a blood clot and then it's a one in one million chance of dying from a blood yeah. clot and that's the thing which is like I'm feeling very confident that if I got any of the symptoms I would know what to do and and I would be able to take action that would mean that blood clots wouldn't be fatal anyway. Yeah. Um, is my hope and belief. Anyway, <laughs> but like I think that's the thing that kind of put me over the edge, which is just like getting all the information I needed to feel prepared to do it. And then I really did want to 
get vaccinated as soon as I could because I know that also there's going to be people who are a lot more nervous about AstraZeneca than me and I would prefer that those people have the Pfizer doses out there for them. Yeah, Leave the Pfizer for the others. You were explaining another part of your reasoning to me earlier, um, like your risk assessment of the situation. And I think think the audience needs to hear this. Yeah. So I was feeling really nervous about the blood clot situation. And then I remembered... And then I remembered that at, uh, what what is it, 2021, I mm. um, went to Nepal and then decided to go paragliding in Pokhara <laughs> in a, for a company that I had not even Googled, um, <laughs> when it was absolutely not covered by my travel or medical insurance in any way, shape or form, uh, in a country that is notorious <laughs> for aerial paragliding accidents, <laughs> where there isn't a super, super, um, sophisticated sort of hospital network throughout and also uh, could have bankrupted my family if they had to mm. uh, medivac me back to Australia. And, and why did you do this, Matilda? Because <laughs> I was sad about a boy. <laughs> I was up in my feels about a boy who wasn't even my boyfriend. <laughs> and then I was like, they had left and then I was on this like trip and then I was like, I need like an end chapter to this like weird week that I've been having. So I was like, I'm, I was being so dramatic. I went paragliding spur of the moment, cried while paragliding. Imagine like the end credits of the movie coming up. You had your main character moment. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting there like this poor guy like strapped to the back of me doing the paragliding. I'm there like weeping, like flying over the river. Like, <laughs> You know what? Probably happens to him a lot. Like, you're probably not the first person. Then I landed and moved on with my life. Um, So I'm like, if I'm willing to risk my life and my family's financial welfare for just an average boy, I should get the AstraZeneca vaccine for the good of the country. Yeah, which also, just to be clear, I would think has a much lower risk of any harm happening uh, than paragliding. (laughs) I cannot express how aggressively lower the chance would be. To be clear, not Anthony. Anthony's beautiful and wonderful. I would go paragliding for him any day in retrospect. <laughs> What's you've got some weird stuff that you've you've done for love though as well. <laughs> like, that sounds so sus the also, way you put that. Not love. Me that was for my own drama. What's you've done but you've taken risks before, haven't you? Um, I think the weirdest thing that I've done or like the riskiest thing that I've done is emotionally risky. Oh. I've, yeah, I wouldn't say like I've actually risked my life and well-being for a boy. But um, three months into dating, my partner, Alex, also the producer of this show, um, I used my birthday money for my 21st birthday, bought a ticket to Beijing and flew over in the dead of winter while the city was like deserted because it was Chinese New Year. All the shops and food were like closed and unavailable um, so that I could go hang out with my three-month-old boyfriend. <laughs> oh, three months into the boyfriend. He was, he was oh, old he, enough oh, sorry. to fly. He, yeah, he was 21. <laughs> he was my, three month, my three-month-old relationship. Um, look, not, no regrets. Best sex of my life. But um, <laughs> so, you know, the things we do for love. It's great. Aww. Yeah. So a lot has happened in this week in terms of Australia and the COVID outbreak and just our response to the pandemic in general. So we're going to break it down for you all into four incy-bincy little chapters because we adore 
a numbered list. Oh, we love a numbered list. We love to feel organized. What's <laughs> chapter one, Justine? Okay, so chapter one, we all go into lockdown and everyone blames Sydney. Okay, so let's just get one thing very clear from the start. Yep. Every single lockdown and outbreak that's going on in Australia right now is all Sydney's fault. Yes? No. Okay. <laughs> Talk me through it. Well, okay, so there seems to be this huge misconception going around online, a lot of political memes, tweets, jokes about the fact that Sydney went into lockdown and then it seemed that every other state followed suit. So therefore, must be Sydney's fault. Wait a second. I thought correlation may not always equal causation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly the case here. Unfortunately, there were just a series of really shitty circumstances that meant multiple outbreaks occurred simultaneously. There was like a bunch at once. It was just bad chance, right? Yes, and New South Wales... I mean, technically, they caused their own lockdown and WA's lockdown. Yeah. But if we're going to put a, like, point a finger at somebody, we probably want to point the finger at Queensland. I know. A lot of the outbreaks <laughs> stemmed from Queensland. There's, so there's five lockdowns. Queensland originated three of them. Yeah. And plus, Queensland had a whole other outbreak that they didn't even lock down for that we're not even going to mention. Like, Queensland's <laughs> got a lot going on. Okay. So let's step through exactly what happened. So... Matilda, what happened last Saturday? Sydney went into lockdown, right? Yes. Okay. So we know about this. Go listen to last episodes if you want all of the details. But yes, last Saturday, Greater Sydney goes into lockdown. They're about a week through at the moment. That we can pretty clearly trace back to issues around like the transportation of international crews. Yeah. There was a limo driver. He got it from an international crew, we reckon. We can put that one pretty squarely in Gladys Berejiklian's camp. Yeah, that's a state management Oh, by the way, obviously the overture to all of these will get into to what the federal government's responsibility is. Yeah. But yes, in terms of the state, Sydney, solid, Berejiklian. Okay, so then we move on to, what is it, Sunday? Yes, so Sunday rolls around, the Northern Territory goes into lockdown. So, Matilda, remember how, like, three weeks ago, Victoria was in lockdown? I do remember. I remember it We were in the middle of it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, a worker who lived in regional Victoria, who worked in the Northern Territory mines, so Mm -hmm. just get that in your head, lived in regional Victoria, but was a fly-in, fly Well, yeah, they travel one week on, one week off. Yes. Yes. So he was from regional Victoria. He travelled to Brisbane. Okay. (laughs) Shit. Yes. It's a lot to keep in my little head. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes to Queensland. Now, because at the time Victoria was in lockdown, Queensland was recognising all of Victoria as a hotspot. Yeah. And so because of this, he had to go into one night of hotel quarantine while he was doing his layover in Queensland. Yeah. Okay. Got that? Cool. Then he flied on a chartered plane to the Northern Territory because the Northern Territory didn't recognise... Regional Victoria. Yes, they didn't recognise regional Victoria as a hotspot. So he could travel into the Northern Territory without doing like two weeks quarantine. Yep. Now, he caught COVID, but the catch is he didn't bring it from Victoria. Where you would expect. He caught it while he was in the one-night hotel quarantine in Queensland. That's such bad luck. Yeah, so there was like an outbreak in the hotel quarantine. Like a quarantine infection breach. Yes, and so he found out like a week later when he got to the Northern Territory that the hotel had this outbreak, he went to isolation, he tested positive for COVID. And then because of that, which is kind of just like unbelievably bad (laughs) luck, really, but like... It, we've been worried for so long about like what if COVID gets into the mines and we found out why that's such a big problem now. There's so many of them and they yeah. fly around the country. There was 900 people that they were then considered close contacts, like a decent 
few have tested positive. And the thing is, they all fly in, fly out workers. So you can have one exposure site and boy, do they fly out. <laughs> and suddenly you have outbreaks around the country, which kind of happened. Have you heard somewhere it's like, I've been to a bit on, I don't know how the tune goes. No. But it's like it lists all the towns in Australia. Oh, you know, no. that it's like that. It's like that person. They go to all those places. And it can all happen in like one week. Yeah. Okay. So a bunch of those people fly to Darwin, obviously, because a lot of people who work in a Northern Territory mine would live in Darwin. Yeah. And suddenly there's a bunch of very contagious Delta COVID in Darwin. It's, it is Delta. Sydney's also Delta. Still separate outbreaks, just and, to be clear. And just to be clear, the Delta variant is a version of COVID that was first seen in India. It's very contagious and more people who get it end up going to hospital. So that's why people get so concerned when they say the Delta variant. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, Darwin locks down. Darwin and, and the surrounding regions locked down for three days? 72 hours. 72 hours. Okay. So let's move on to Monday and talk about the lockdown of Perth and Peel. Now, this is one we probably can blame New South Wales for. Yeah. So a woman flew from Sydney. Uh, she spent a lot of time in Bondi, the New South Wales outbreak. A lot of that is focused around Bondi. Yes. She flies back into Perth on the 20th of June uh, and then it f- takes a few days and then she tests positive and it turns out that two of her clients that she had seen while she was in while WA. she was in WA have also tested positive. So there was community spread of the Delta variant. Yeah. Uh, McGowan, we all know that Perth and WA aren't like, oh, let's just chug along with a little see bit of COVID. Let's see how that goes. He's like, no, fuck this four-day lockdown, Perth and Peel. Yeah, so Premier Mark McGowan shuts the state down. They go into a short lockdown. And then... Okay, Tuesday, Queensland. Queensland goes into lockdown. Now, you might think, oh, this might have something to do with all the other outbreaks that have happened. No. <laughs> they have a... They completely have a, new. Completely separate outbreak. So... This was a casual receptionist who worked outside the COVID-19 ward at a Brisbane hospital. And when we say work outside, like she was literally the clerical worker who's like working at the desk next to the the doors of the COVID ward. Like we're talking metres outside. Yeah, so she hadn't been vaccinated and she and her brother had just gone travelling around Queensland. Yeah, so she works a few shifts, unknowingly is infected at some point, goes on a family holiday because she's a child. She's 19. (laughs) She goes on a family holiday with her family and her little brother. They go to Townsville and Magnetic Island. Regional parts of Queensland. Regional parts of Queensland up north. And all in all, they think that she travelled throughout the state for 10 days while potentially infectious Yes, uh, before she got tested and then tested positive. Yes, but we learn later that the receptionist infection can be traced back to this one specific person who was in the COVID ward at the Brisbane Hospital. And this becomes important for later because it turns out that they were a returning traveller who'd come in and out of Australia several times to go to Indonesia, which is kind of the federal government's fault. This is important, so hold on to that fact for later. Oh my gosh, we're going to really get into to who's to blame for the Queensland lockdown and then reach no conclusive answers. So get excited for that debate. And, and finally, Wednesday. Okay, Wednesday. South Australia. Yes. So South Australia records five cases. And this is, if you remember, remember all the way back to Sunday where the we had Northern that mine Territory. outbreak? <laughs> yes. So one of those miners, um, and this affects two states, by the way, but stay with me. One of those miners 
flies out from the mine, spends seven hours, I want to say, laying over in the Alice Springs airport and then flies to South Australia. After a couple of days in South Australia, he eventually tests positive and infects four out of the five members of his family. I'm pretty sure the last member, the little baby, is also now infected. Okay. Poor little thing. <laughs> Poor brother. Um, infects his whole family. South Australia isn't too worried, though. They go, he yeah. had this, like, he tested negative first and then tested positive, so, like, chances are he was probably not infectious and the only people community and the only people he's infected are his family family and these family hadn't really moved around they had been isolating they'd been sort of doing the right thing yes so south australia tightened some restrictions they don't lock down but in the northern territory Mm. in alice springs even though he hasn't technically infected anyone there no one has tested positive they decide no we need to lock down because he spent that seven hours in the airport and it's important to acknowledge why alice springs decided to lock down exactly which is because they have a more vulnerable population they have a large first nations community there Mm -hmm. and there's like his systemic and intergenerational health problems within first nations communities that makes them more vulnerable to things like covid as well as they're sort of there's a lot of remote communities that use Alice Springs as a hub, like travel in and out to get yep. groceries, to get supplies. And then, you know, people could bring the infection back to their remote community where it's really not, there's not like a massive health system set up. There's yes. big travel times that people have to wait. It could be really devastating for those remote communities if COVID seeded in those areas. So very understandably, the chief minister of Northern Territories, Michael Gunner, that's, it's like premier, but he's not, a, they're not a state, so it's he doesn't get to call himself premier. <laughs> the chief minister, Michael Gunner, basically says like we got to do this locks down for three days so far there hasn't been any recorded cases there thankfully uh thank thankfully uh but that's the most recent lockdown we've experienced okay so that's how the virus spread we have all the pieces on the board we now know where the lockdowns came from mostly not sydney yeah well i mean like a 40 percent hit rate it's all right Okay, so this takes us to chapter two, the blame game begins. Boom, boom. (laughs) Okay, so on one hand, you could say that all these outbreaks we're experiencing are like the fault of the states. You could make that argument, you know, it's mismanagement of hotel quarantine. It was not ensuring that all healthcare workers or, you know, limo drivers were vaccinated. You can point to very specific individual incidents Mm. that would be the responsibility of states. But. Or, (laughs) alternatively, you could get very angry at the federal government over two specific things that they control when it comes to quarantining and COVID safety. Yeah. Like, if there's, like, a disturbance at the classroom and Tommy's pulled down another kid's pants and drawn a dick on the whiteboard, (laughs) you can blame Tommy. Or you can be like, why wasn't the teacher in the classroom to begin with? You know, yeah. it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell who's, who's the blame. <laughs> okay, that yes. And so these two um, situations where they're like, the federal government really could have stopped this from happening in the yeah, first yeah, place yeah, yeah. is international borders. Pantsing the other kid. <laughs> and vaccines. Whiteboard dick. <laughs> so let's start with international borders. <laughs> okay. So... The Labor governments, Mm -hmm. the state Labor governments, Mm -hmm. which is like Queensland, Victoria and WA in this case, they come out and say that this is actually the fault of the federal government. If they weren't letting in so many international Mm travellers, we wouldn't have such a high risk of having COVID in our hotel quarantine systems going through our hospital systems. But also, can we be clear, 
barely anyone is coming into the country to begin with. Like, we've still Mm. got a wait list of lots of vulnerable people who are waiting to get in. But the criticism that uh, Queensland in particular was levelling was that there was people coming in who were, like, repeat offenders or going out for non-essential reasons and then coming back into Australia. Yes. And, you know, going through quarantine multiple times. And this was particularly relevant to them because they realised that the hospital worker, as we said before, who was, like, patient zero in that outbreak um, in Queensland in Queensland they had caught COVID from somebody who was in the hospital COVID ward who had come in and out of Australia multiple times during the pandemic to visit Indonesia yeah and Queensland's criticism was hey federal government why have you allowed this person to come in and out of the country several times and especially why have you allowed this person who isn't vaccinated to come in and out of the country several times yes and another criticism from the queensland government was you know tens of thousands of australians have left the country in the past 18 months and come back and they also said that a lot of people who are coming back into australia as you said are not australian citizens or permanent residents like why are we letting those people come back Is it just because they can afford a business class ticket, which guarantees them a flight, or, you know, they can organize their own charter planes to come in and out of the country? So it was like a criticism on the federal government for the number of people that they're letting in, but also why are they letting these kinds of people come in? Yeah, and I think it's very confusing to a lot of people to hear that we've got, like, people coming and going, but then there's also still people who are trapped out of Australia and can't get back in. And I think part of that is that there's like an uneven, non-unified system for people returning to Australia. Like it's a lot about who can get a plane ticket more than a methodical going through of everyone who might be overseas and needs to get back. Like it's, it's confused overall. And also that falls back on the federal government as well. Yes. Now, The federal government weren't having a bar of Queensland's criticism. Karen Andrews, the Home Affairs Minister, who's also from Queensland, they rejected the idea that most of the people coming to Australia aren't Australian citizens or permanent residents. Went so far as to say that Queensland saying that was like political smoke screens and it was politicising a crisis and and it was a dirty, dirty business. And then they had like a whole fight on Twitter about whose numbers were correct and whose data was, was up to date. It so was like, a whole situation. She did admit, though, that there was a problem with repeat enterers and leavers. Yeah, she did acknowledge that like they needed to crack down on people who were just like coming and going from the the country multiple times and going through the hotel quarantine system but she did also say like hey state governments you should just handle your hotel quarantine better and i feel as though minister andrew's comments were like in some way valid criticisms here because the state government is saying hey you're letting too many people come into the country at the moment we need to reduce the number of international travelers and their justification for that was hey if we reduce the number of international travelers we're reducing the chance of people bringing COVID into the country. And while I accept that, at the same time, it doesn't matter how many people you let into the country, any of them could have COVID. And really what prevents people from spreading COVID in the country is having a proper quarantine system. But I think the state's argument coming back to that would be that we shouldn't be relying on hotels for quarantine anyway. The government 18 months ago should have started building purpose-built quarantine facilities like the one in the Northern Territory's Howard Springs, Mm. which, you know, has never had a breach, uh, and doing that already. So the fact that, like, hotels don't work, it's like, yeah, no shit, hotels don't work anyway. They weren't built for quarantining people. (laughs) That That being said, the current Queensland outbreak 
the thing that prompted Anastasia Palaszczuk to be talking about people coming and going, that didn't start with a hotel breach. That started with a hospital breach. You mm. had someone working in close proximity with a COVID ward who wasn't vaccinated. Yeah. That's fundamentally the role of Queensland Health. And we will get into that very soon. Before we dive too much into the shit fight, there's no room, the big dog fight between Queensland and the federal government, why don't you walk me through what all this anger over the vaccine is? Okay, so this takes us to Chapter 3, which is the criticism by states against the federal government that it's their fault these outbreaks have happened because we're not all vaccinated. So we've been watching from Australia how people in the US and the UK have been Going outside, lockdowns have been easing. Some of them are back at concert level interaction now. There's mosh pits. We've really been watching kind of the world open up at the same time as we have just periodically closed down and down and down and down. And that's put into very sharp focus the issues with the Australian vaccine rollout. So there's been naturally criticism from the state governments that have been going into lockdown that we wouldn't need to be going into lockdown as a country if we had just had a better vaccine rollout. So wait a second. How is our vaccine rollout going? (laughs) Well, we got some updated figures on Friday. And as it stands, Australia has about 8% of the population fully vaccinated. I mean, it sounds surprisingly good, but how is that compared to other countries on a similar economic footing to us? Okay, so to put into perspective, the US and the UK are at around 50% of their populations fully vaccinated. Not great. We're like, we're definitely towards the bottom of rich nations, aren't we? In terms of our vaccine rollout and how many people are fully vaccinated? A hundred percent. Absolutely. But there was a change to the vaccine rollout recently, uh, evidenced by the fact that there's a vaccine in my arm right now. (laughs) What was that? Walk me through it. Okay, so last Monday, there was an emergency national cabinet meeting. So just to clarify, national cabinet was started at the beginning of the pandemic. It's where the state and the federal government leaders come together and discuss all things coordinated COVID response. So there was an emergency national cabinet meeting called on Monday because of the COVID outbreaks that were happening around the country. And after the national cabinet meeting, Scott Morrison did a press conference where he said that you can go to your GP if you are under the age of 60 and ask to have the AstraZeneca vaccine. The reason why this was so shocking to everybody was because he was not just saying like, oh, you can go and do this. Like we give GPs permission to give people AstraZeneca if they're under 60. But it was almost like he was encouraging young people to go and get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah. So I think there was confusion between what actually happened in National Cabinet, it seems, and what the Prime Minister announced, which is that in National Cabinet, all the state territory leaders and the Prime Minister agreed to an indemnity for GPs if they administer a vaccine to someone under the age of 60, which essentially means that if someone agrees to get the AstraZeneca vaccine under the age of 60, they then can't sue that doctor if they get a blood clot or something like that. Yes, because all of the medical advice, whether that's been from the Australian Medical Association, the College of GPs, but also from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, who's been coordinating the whole vaccine rollout. They're the big daddy of what goes in vaccines. (laughs) All of these organisations were saying that if you're over 60, you can get AstraZeneca, but if you're under 60, you should be getting Pfizer. 
Yeah. And so there was a lot of confusion, like, oh, well, why has the prime minister come out and said that if you're under 60, you should go get AstraZeneca? And he actually said, we encourage you to go speak to your GP about AstraZeneca. And that's what state leaders, or at least some of them, it seems, took a bit of issue to. Like that distinction between just being like, you can, and actively saying, the vaccine gates are open, you can go to your GP. You, you should go to it. your GP. Well, yeah. In- I mean, they encouraged, yeah, to have a conversation with the GP, but a lot of people took that as encouraging people to get vaccinated. And that starts a storm. And that storm hits. In Queensland. Tell me about it. So, on Wednesday, the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk flanked by the Deputy Premier Stephen Miles, the Health Minister Yvette Darth, and then coming up the back with the big guns, Chief Health Officer Dr. Jeanette Young. <laughs> so they all come out swinging. They are angry and they, they are furious. And they say that there was no national cabinet decision about like encouraging under six year olds to go get AstraZeneca. They wanted to know who had made this decision and why they'd made this decision. And they went further than that. Jeanette Young was saying, if you're under 40, do not go get AstraZeneca. Straight up, it was quite scary to me who was live blogging away as this was happening <laughs> with her AstraZeneca booking booked in for the next day. Yeah. Um, which was, she was saying, like, we do not want an 18-year-old who, if they got COVID, would probably not die from it, go out and get a vaccine and then potentially die from that vaccine, which... Mm. If you actually get COVID, you're very much more likely to die from COVID than the AstraZeneca vaccine pretty much at any age. But, like, overall, your chances of getting COVID are low, and that's what she was saying, which is that we shouldn't be taking this risk. And that is, in fairness, the decision that the ATAGI, the Australian Technical Technical Advisory Group Group on Immunisations, also came to. But she was expressing it in a stronger way than people were used to. Yeah, and in a way that would have struck fear into the minds of a lot of people listening. Including Matilda. (laughs) (laughs) But the health minister also revealed that Queensland only had enough Pfizer doses to last eight more days until... Monday, the day that this podcast is being released. And she said that the state government had asked the federal government for 130 more trays of Pfizer vaccine so that they could keep vaccinating people during the lockdown. And not just have to focus on doing the second jabs for other people in Pfizer. Like, to increase the number of Pfizer people vaccinated. Yes. And she said that the federal government had denied this, even though they had given Victoria extra doses of Pfizer when Victoria was in lockdown several weeks ago. But then she went one step further and actually said, well, maybe this is why Scott Morrison has been opening up the AstraZeneca eligibility or like encouraging people to talk to their GPs about it. She was sort of saying, maybe there is no Pfizer left. Maybe we're heading for a drought. Maybe we're not going to get more for a couple of months, which to be very clear is all speculation, but also the federal government has been very, very cagey about how many doses we have, how many doses are actually in the country right now. So you can see why, like, the Queensland government would be suspicious. I guess you could also make an argument to maybe not air those suspicions in a press conference. But <laughs> I think it's important, though, to jump in here and point out the fact that it is politically advantageous for the state Queensland Labor government to try and criticise and put blame on the federal Liberal government for this outbreak and lockdown that they've experienced because nobody likes when there is a COVID outbreak or when there is a lockdown. And so it's very politically useful to uh, channel resentment away from the state government towards the federal government. I think a really clear example of this is during these press conferences, often the reporters are asking questions of like, well, 
what exactly happened in this hospital scenario? Because if you remember, you know, it was the 19-year-old who was unvaccinated working outside a COVID ward, Mm. by all means really should have been vaccinated. Why wasn't she? And the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, will answer those questions in a very formulaic way, which is one, she goes... I already said from the start, I'm so sorry that this happened. Like, it should not have happened. We're very angry. There will be an investigation. But. But. This is people coming in from overseas and there's people coming in multiple times. And, you know, if we didn't have so many people coming in from overseas and the hotel quarantine system just isn't working and if we had a proper vaccination rollout, it wouldn't have happened either. Like, there is a very, very sharp, clearly purposeful turn from the state government's responsibility in this situation to exactly how the federal government should have played into this. But the thing is, this isn't to do with hotel quarantine. It's to do with hospitals. And I think... These questions are really valid to ask, like what role has the federal government played in ensuring people come back to Australia safely? Why don't we have purpose-built quarantine facilities yet? Why don't we have a proper vaccine rollout? But whether these questions should be used in the heat of the moment to score political points is another question. I know. Yeah, definitely. And it's not something that only Labor is guilty of, to be Mm. clear. Political point scoring is central. And just to sort of delve into the territory of just personal take here for a moment. So take Mm. this as you will. But from a personal level, it did make me feel uncomfortable seeing AstraZeneca and people's confidence in that vaccine and confidence in getting vaccinated Mm. used as part of a pretty clear political diversion away from your own problems. Like, I think it's very clear. There's no clear right and wrong here. It's not this federal government's fault or the state government's fault. But I guess it does make me uncomfortable how both sides have been using this situation to go against each other. Yeah, and stirring up like the fear around AstraZeneca where it might be better for someone to get vaccinated than not. Yeah, and saying that, you know, you don't want an 18-year-old to die from AstraZeneca without again and again pointing out how tiny, 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 tiny that chance is, Mm. at least from a personal level, that made me feel uncomfortable. So on Friday afternoon, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, after National Cabinet, emerged and greeted the press with two very big announcements. Okay, (laughs) you're looking at me like we're going to divide this up equally. (laughs) One of us will take each announcement. But here's the thing. (laughs) This will happen on Friday. I got vaccinated on Thursday and I spent Friday asleep because <laughs> I had some mild AstraZeneca side effects. Yeah, very normal. Um, and I had no idea what happened. Yeah, I rang Matilda to be like, let's just like talk through plan what we're going to talk about in this week's episode. And Matilda was like, yep, yeah, cool. So running through like all the things that I happened ran in the through, week. I was pretty like in a, co- not a COVID haze, in a vaccine haze. I like yeah. wrote out this whole plan. And then Justine's like, okay, I've looked at your plan. A lot of typos, but also... <laughs> You haven't mentioned, like, yet today's news, National Cabinet's news. The biggest news. news of the week. And I'm like, what news, Justine? <laughs> you were like, have I woken up in a parallel universe? Not, again, I mentioned I've been watching too much Westworld. It was very confusing. I'm like, I have woken up from the Westworld now and I am a <laughs> robot that doesn't understand what's going on. So please walk me through. What are these announcements? I need to know. Educate the robot. I've only seen Instagram graphics and one of them was one we made. So I need your help. Okay, so 
Two things announced. The first thing is that the federal government is going to cut the number of people arriving internationally in Australia by half, so by 50%. Now, not such a huge surprise. This was what, as we said earlier, various state governments were calling for. Now, we know that they're going to cut this number until at least next year, but honestly, who knows when we're going to get back to the levels that we've been experiencing recently of international travellers. Yeah, so from now on, we're going to have, what is it, 3,085 people a week. Yeah, exactly. This does mean that far fewer Australians are going to be able to come home because there's going to be, you know, harsher limits on the number of people coming in every week. But it also means that there are going to be far less skilled workers and international students coming into Australia, two very important groups of people that the Australian economy relies on. Gladys Berejiklian was one of the people, the New South Wales Premier, who actually came out and said, like, no, I'm not actually delighted about this. Yes. And the premiers from sort of Victoria, Queensland and WA have more taken the tact of, like, of course we don't want to slash international arrivals, but the vaccine rollout's been so shit that we have no choice. Otherwise, we're going to have to keep locking down. Esquentially. Another huge thing that Scott Morrison announced on Friday is a new four-phase pandemic exit plan. Oh, my God. I know. When you say exit plan, it just kind of – it's very exciting because it sounds like, you know, like single file through a door and escape the coronavirus. It sounds like um, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow's divorce, a conscious uncoupling from COVID. (laughs) We have a plan to consciously uncouple from from COVID. COVID. And we're going to take four stages. Yes. Walk me through what they are. Okay, so phase one is the phase that we are currently in. So it involves... Does that count? It does count. They say four stages, but if one stage is like right now, it's like, okay, well, that's not a stage then. That's just, (laughs) that's surely stage zero. Well... No, stage one here. Because phase one, unfortunately, is they said is going to take at least until the end of the year. So we're not starting until next year. (laughs) That's what you're telling me. The COVID exit plan doesn't start until next year. (laughs) Okay, so phase one includes getting everyone vaccinated, uh, trialing different quarantine options. The Prime Minister floated the idea of at-home quarantine for people who are vaccinated and coming into Australia. And during phase one, we will continue to use lockdowns, but only as a last resort. But... I don't know. Mark McGowan and Scott Morrison's view of what a last resort is seem vastly different. Yeah, we're currently experiencing a lot of last resort circumstances. Like, yeah. So that takes us to phase two, where we will see an easing of lockdown restrictions and border restrictions for vaccinated residents. So if you've been vaccinated and there's a COVID outbreak, you won't have to adhere to the same rules and restrictions as, you know, the rest of the population. There's an outbreak in Melbourne. All you unvaccinated poo-poo heads, you can't go visit Perth. Look at me on a plane over to Perth. Sucked in. I don't think states are going to follow it. I'm just throwing that out there. You don't, you don't think they're going to follow the... I I can't see if there was like a... Imagine there was like a big outbreak, Queensland being like, yeah, mm. if you're vaccinated, come over. Mm. I don't know. I guess time will tell. But that's my that's my 2022 prediction. Ooh, interesting. Hot it take. just feels like something that might fall apart. Okay. Um, That takes us to phase three. We're going to be removing international traveller limits, those ones that have now been introduced, the cap on international travellers coming into the country. Mm-hmm. But we're also going to be maybe expanding our travel bubble to Ooh. people in, like in Singapore or other surrounding nations. And from stage three onwards, no more lockdowns or restrictions. Like, oh. We're done just, with that. We're done with it. We're done which, with it. Which stage three is like treat it like a serious flu, right? That's yes. when we move into like we're worried about it, but we're not going to be changing your life in a really significant way. Significant material way. Yeah. And another important part of phase three to make sure that this is, you know, able to happen is that the federal government is going to ensure that we have lots of 
are vaccine booster shots available to everyone. The vaccine rollout Ooh. hasn't been fabulous, but the vaccine booster shot is going to be our comeback. They say it. The booster shot, it's going to blow your mind. The booster shot rollout, ridiculous. Yeah, we said that the COVID, the first vaccine rollout, that's not a race. Guess what? Broom, broom, bitches. It's fast and furious for the, the booster shot time. <laughs> and that takes us to phase four, which is where basically everything is going to go back to normal, um, except if you want to come to Australia, you're probably going to have to like be vaccinated and get tested negative for COVID. COVID. And do we have like a date for stage four or do we nope. just know it's into the future? Sometime in the future. We cool. have no, the only thing that Scott Morrison said at Friday's press conference is that we're probably going to be finished with stage one at the end of this year. Still debatable. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, honestly, it does feel a bit debatable given that we are only at 8% of the population fully vaccinated, but we'll see. Look, it's July. In fairness, we're, time. Al- we're also going to have a huge boost in our percentage of the population fully vaccinated once we reach three months on from AstraZeneca opening up, which That's is in a true. couple of months. Like there is going to be a huge boost when that first big wave of AstraZeneca reaches like three months and they all get their second dose, right? That's true because AstraZeneca, there is like a larger period of time between your first shot and then your second shot. And so... It's true. We do have a lot of people getting vaccinated with AZ and that's probably going to show up in the data more in a few months when they are fully vaccinated. So yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We're not worried. Wait, are we done then? After stage four, are we done with COVID? I mean, I think the fact that they're still saying under stage four, you know, people coming into Australia are going to have to get tested for COVID and like get vaccinated before they come into Australia. I think that that signifies the fact that a lot of world leaders are thinking, that COVID isn't going to go away permanently anytime soon. So we're still going to have to take precautions. But yeah, it definitely will be a much more normal world than the one we're currently living in. It does feel really nice. Like even though there's a lot of question marks still in that rollout, it does feel really nice to be like, oh, wow. There is an end one day. There is an end point someday. We don't know when that day is going to be. We don't know how long each phase is going to take, but but we'll get there. That is all we have time for this week. (laughs) But if you'd like to hear more from us, we actually did an interview with Future Women this week. Wowzers. Yeah, they're an awesome uh, women-run media company. And over on their Facebook page, which is just Future Women, uh, you can hear our live interview. We talked all things about this podcast, about, you know, creating financially sustainable businesses, our advice for anyone who's hoping to start their own, like, side hustle or creative project. So, yeah. It's bold to call this a financially stable business. No, we, we didn't say we had one. We just talked about <laughs> we, the we challenges. Talk about, we talked about our hopes to one day have a financially stable business. I know, they ask us questions about like, well, what advice what do you have What advice would you have? And it's like, could they give advice to us? Yes, but we did our best. We, ha- we, we shared whatever wisdom we could think of at the time. Speaking of our dream to have a financially stable business, you can go support us directly over on Patreon. Patreon! Or you could help us out by sharing the podcast, popping it on your Instagram story, telling a mate. Tagging us at Old Boys Club Pod because we shout you out every week and we're about to do that right now. This week we are giving thanks to Katie, Arielle, Martin, Elizabeth, Morgan, Rose, Nadine, Emma, Emily, Wasteland Review, Katrina, and Stephanie. And if you want to see more of us, you can follow us on Instagram at Old Boys Club Pod, on Twitter at Old Boys Club Pod, on Facebook by joining the Old Boys Club Podcast Community, or you can send us an email on Old Boys Club Pod at gmail.com. Amazing. Wow, that's such a tongue. Oh, I know, gosh. <laughs> 
Before we go, we'd like to acknowledge that our podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrawong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we would also like to acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Our theme music for this podcast is by the fantastic Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. And, and this, this is Old Boys Club, Club. the stage four of political podcasting. What does that mean? Of the rollout, like the stage four rollout, because that's the good one. And then I was saying that we're the good one. Oh, okay, cool. It's the vaccine. I know. <laughs> this is a side effect this that no one talks effect. about. You find merman hot. You find Anthony Albanese. No. You find Labour politicians only as, as a merman. <laughs> I'm just saying. Maybe I watched Little Mermaid too young. <laughs> Poseidon.